I'm pausing because I think what I've got open here, I'm not meant to preach on. Literally, as I walked up here, I think the Lord said to me, it's meant to be something else. And uh, this is going to be crazy because I don't have the passages out, but we're going to have to see how we go. Um, I I actually want to, I think we're meant to look um, at the subject. I'm going to put my watch here. If I look at my watch, my, my, my watch, my iPhone, while I'm talking to you, it's not because I'm bored and I'm reading my text. It's, I just, I just, with my eyesight, I can't see the clock back there. So I'm just going to check that we don't go past midnight. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'd like us just to look together this evening at the subject of, uh, uh, intercession. Now, before you go in your heart, oh no, not another talk that's going to make me feel guilty about how much I should pray and how little I pray. I hope it's not going to do that. I want us to step back a bit and look at intercession as something that is a, a lot bigger uh, than, than praying for others. It involves praying for others, but it's a lot more than that. True biblical intercession uh, is about standing in the gap. And uh, to be an intercessor is to be someone who stands in the gap between God and other people. It's a priestly function. And uh, our great example, of course, is Jesus, who is our great high priest, who right now is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He's doing it right now, at just gone 8.15. The reason I know that is because the scripture says he is forever at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, and that includes now. So while I'm speaking to you, do you know what? Jesus is praying for you, and he's probably praying particularly hard right now, because you need it. Uh, and he's praying for me. He is the great intercessor. It's a priestly function. He stands in the gap. And that's what he did supremely on the cross. On the cross, when he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was making intercession for us. As he hung on the cross, he was praying for us. But what brought him to that place? And what are the, what are the essential ingredients of intercession? I want to suggest there are three things, three ingredients to true intercession. The first is identification. The second is agony. And the third is authority. It begins with identification. And we see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus God did not open a window in heaven one day and shout down, I love you. He came himself. He took our skin. He became one of us. And he identified. God identified with sinful humanity. And do you have, do you, do you, do you get the, the degree to which he identified? Do you understand that the, the depths to which God identified with his creation, the creator with his creation. He didn't just take on our flesh for a season. God took our whole humanity and somehow God, the Son, 
without for a moment becoming any less God, became at the same time fully a human being. Now, at the other side of, of death, we will rise, those of us that know him, and we will meet him, and heaven the, and the new earth will be populated with believers. But do you know, tonight, there's actually just one man in heaven, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. For, forever, forever, God identifies with us. And he, he, he moved, walked among us. He, he, he moved into the neighborhood, to quote Eugene, Peterson, uh, Eugene Peterson's ver, uh, version of, of that passage at the beginning of John's Gospel. And in his identification, he took on the agony that was associated with identification. He took the, on the agony of standing in the gap, the agony of the cross. And out of that comes true authority. And you don't just see it with, with Jesus. Uh, if you look with me at the um, uh, Moses in Exodus uh, 32, verse 31. Now the story of Moses and the people of Israel was, was a story of Moses led the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years and for 40 years they did nothing but moan and groan and complain. They were the church from hell. It was like for 40 years they rebelled, they moaned, they groaned, they wouldn't do what they were told, they complained. You know, even before they crossed the Red Sea, they started complaining. Oh, why did we listen to you, Pastor Moses? What are we doing here? We're either going to drown or the Egyptians are going to kill us. We shouldn't have listened to you. It's terrible. And then God parts the Red Sea. They go over on dry ground. They're, 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 they're redeemed. And what's the next thing they do? They're moaning because there's no water in the desert. So God says to Moses, strike the rock. And Moses hits the rock, and San Pellegrino comes out, and they have enough to drink. And then pretty soon they're complaining again, we're going to die of hunger in this desert, there's no food, so God provides a miracle every day with a double portion on one day to last for two. A miracle of manna every day. And what do they do after a while? They're complaining again. Oh no, it's not manna again. And we, we had that yesterday. Why can't we have something else on the menu? It's always manna. It's always flipping manna. And you know what they, they were doing? They were complaining. And they, they, they said, in Egypt, we had garlic and cucumbers. They have been set free from slavery and the best they, they wanted to go back to Egypt to have some garlic, the morons. I mean, what were they, French? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You see, you see, they got that mentality of grumbling and complaining from being slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves for so long, they complained and grumbled under their oppression. They'd been set free, but they still had the mentality of slaves. And, and the easy bit for God was getting Israel out of Egypt. 
The hard bit was getting Egypt out of Israel. That's why a journey that should have taken 11 days, if they talked to and walked at an average pace in, uh, in a straight line, took 40 years. God had them going round and round in circles until a generation arose that forgot they were being slaves. And you know, at the end of 40, can you imagine leading a people and they grumble for 40 years? And then at the end, Moses goes up the mountain. He, he goes to a, a soul survivor festival and he has an encounter with God. It's amazing. I don't know if Redmond and Hughes were kind of the equivalent were there, but, 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 but Moses hears some great preaching and it's direct. And it even gets written on tablets of stone. And Moses is coming down from his one-man festival with the Almighty. His face, everything's great. And he can't wait to say, guys, you won't believe where I've been. You can't, won't believe who I've been talking to. And when, when he gets down, he finds out that they've, they've made an image, a, a golden calf, and they're worshipping an idol. Now at this point, God's had enough. And God actually says to Moses, he says, Moses, I've had it with these people. I've actually had it with them. I can't, I, you know what? I think I'm going to destroy them. And I'll start again with you and your family, Moses. Now, I'm sure Ant, your church is a lovely church, lovely people. I've been pastoring a church down the road in Watford for 20 years. And I need to tell you, my church at times has displeased me. They have annoyed and upset me. You're going to find this hard to believe, some of you. But there have been times when they have not laughed at my jokes. There have been other times when they've said, we've heard those jokes before. And there have been times over those 20 years where if the Lord came to me and said, Mike, I've had it with Soul Survivor Watford. I've had enough. I think I may destroy them and start again with you. There are times I would have been tempted to say, Lord, what a good idea. Let me help you. Give me a machine gun. Now, if there was anybody... If there was anybody who had a right to say, Lord, I'll join you, machine gun at the ready, it was Moses. Forty years, they were the church from hell. And yet, when God said that to Moses, do you know what his reply was? It's astonishing. It's astounding. Sometimes we read it so quickly, we don't, un we don't get what we're reading. Verse 31 of chapter 32. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. And then listen to this. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Can you believe that? This is Moses... You know, God, God talked with Moses as he would talk to a friend. Moses was the friend of God. This is Moses who, who saw, who, whose face was radiant, who, who was 
had such a relationship with God. And he said to God about the people who had given him nothing but trouble. He said, if you can't just forgive their sin, if you need, if you need something, blot me out of the book you have written. Finish me off. What was Moses doing? He was identifying with the people and the identification led to agony. You see, it wasn't a job for Moses. It wasn't just they were God's people, they were his people. And he was one of them. And whatever they did, he loved them. And so he said, if you need a sacrifice, take me. Of course, the Lord graciously refused his offer because God had another plan and someone else was going to get blotted out a few thousand years later. That was God's plan. Then, just look at this. If we move back to the New Testament, to um, Romans. I think it's Romans 9. Romans 9. You know, Paul... Um, <laughs> Paul, from the moment he, he became a Christian, he, he was persecuted by the Jews. They went after him with a vengeance. They tried to kill him, to murder him. They stoned him. They left him for dead. Uh, five times he received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. They chased him out of town. Some say maybe they were his thorn in the flesh. No one quite knows. They, they were on his back everywhere he went. And yet, Paul says this amazing verse, two verses, three verses, in Romans 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Can you believe that? He says, I, I wish that I would be cursed and cut off from Christ that for their sake, that they might be in Christ. I would be This is Paul who says to the Philippians, Everything that was worth anything to me, everything that was to my credit, I count as rubbish is the polite translation. I count it as excrement, he says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know what, what he says to the Philippians? He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, full stop. Isn't that a great verse we can put in our, on our walls, right in our Bibles? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, full stop. Except there's no full stop. You can't do that with the scripture. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the 
fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, God did something in Paul. When, when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, when God met him, then God said to one of his servants, a guy called Ananias, go to a street called Straight. You'll find Saul of Tarsus there. Pray for him. He's a little bit blind at the moment that he might be healed. And Ananias, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says to the Lord, Lord, are you sure about this one? Haven't you read the papers recently? This man's been killing us. And the Lord says, go. He is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and I have shown him how much he must suffer for my name. How about that, getting that at your, at your conversion? Come forward, anyone who wants to become a Christian, before you say the prayer, he's just going to show you how much you must suffer for his name. You see, he got that at the beginning. That's, and that's why for Paul, he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but also equally, just as much, just as much as the power of his resurrections, he wanted to know the fellowship. There's a fellowship that's unique fellowship, that's a sweet fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We don't share in his sufferings for people to be redeemed. Christ died once for all on the cross. We don't add to that. But as Moses, as Moses said, take me for them. Paul said, take me for them. Because I don't just know your love for me. I've now received your love, your burden, your heart for them. And as you identify with them, I identify with them. As you, Lord Jesus, go through the agony of identification, so I want to have the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. Do you see? Do you see how important this is? Let's go quickly back to Nehemiah, one of my most favorite books. I love this. And Nehemiah was in the citadel of Susa in Babylon. And he was an exile there. And he did quite well for himself. He was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And Hanani, his brother, comes to him from the remnant in Jerusalem. And Hanani tells him about the situation of Jerusalem. How its walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Do you know Nehemiah's response? He says in Nehemiah 1 verse 4, and I quote this from memory. He says, when I heard these things, I formed a fundraising committee and started a marketing drive. No, he didn't. He said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed for some days. You see what Nehemiah did? Before he did, he allowed God to break his heart. Any true ministry for the Lord 
begins with tears. If it's authentic, it begins with tears. They that sow in tears will reap in joy, says the psalmist. We all want to reap in joy. The necessary precondition is sowing in tears. God breaks our heart because when he does that, then we have his heart. And when we have his heart, we don't give up. We carry on in season and out of season, on the good days and on the bad days, because we're doing it for Jesus and not for anyone else. And he's looking at us, and it's like, well, the church has collapsed today, Lord, but I'm going to carry on because you're watching. The ministry's out of money today, Lord. But I'm getting up this morning and I'm going to serve you in whatever you give me because you're watching. And then, Nehemiah, before he goes back to Jerusalem, he prays an amazing prayer. We haven't got time. We haven't got time to look at the, um, um, at the, whole, at the whole prayer. But there's one bit I want to tell you that's really important. Nehemiah says at one point, I confess the sins we, your people, including myself and my father's household, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the laws and the decrees that you gave us. The amazing thing about that is everything we know about Nehemiah suggests he was a righteous dude. He was a good guy. And if I was Nehemiah, I would have been tempted to pray, Lord, I confess the sins they have committed against you. They have acted very wickedly towards you. They have not obeyed your commands, your laws, or your decrees. (sighs) Lord, what are we going to do about them? He doesn't do that. He identifies with the people. He's one of them. I don't stand apart and look, I'm one of them. Was he more righteous than they were? It appears so. But there's someone who was even more righteous than Nehemiah by a long way. And he identified with the people. And he took their sin and their pain and their brokenness. You see, he did it for redemption. We did it. We do it because we love him and because we want to have the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I don't know what you think is the weirdest book in the Bible, but I have to tell you I am convinced that there is a weirder book than Revelation. And uh, it has to be surely Ezekiel. Anyone ever read Ezekiel? It is weird. It is wacky. And honestly, honestly, you know, Ezekiel, it's full of visions and it's full of weird pictures. You know, wheels within wheels and chariots of fire and dry bones coming together and and all sorts of bizarre things. And rivers that start as little streams on the ankle and then you could almost drown in them and everything. If I didn't know better... I would suspect that Ezekiel was popping a pill when he was writing some of this. He was taking an illegal substance, but I do know better. 
But it's certainly weird and wacky. And of all the weird and wacky bits in Ezekiel, if you want my opinion of what is the most weirdest and the wackiest, I'm going to tell you, even if you don't want my opinion, it's found in Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, I don't know about you, but I've wasted too much of my Christian life. Do you, do you, you know what I've done for like, Christian life with the Bible? I've, you know the bits that I don't understand? I, you know, because you know when you read the Bible in a year, or try to. You know what, what you do? In order to get through it, what you do is you go through Leviticus like this. You know, oh, don't understand it, but I've read it. I put my eyes down it. And then you stop at the bits you do understand. Well, that's fairly useless to study the bits you do understand, because you already understand those. But anyway, well, I did this with Ezekiel, and I just want us not to rush through this. I want, I'm going to read you this, this prophetic act, and I want you to understand what exactly is going on. The Lord says to this, this to Ezekiel, Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. I just want to pause there. The context is not Ezekiel's bedroom with the curtains drawn. The context is a public place, a park, the street. God says, Ezekiel, take a clay tablet, a flat piece of clay, put it on the ground, get your felt-tipped pens out, and draw the city of Jerusalem. Draw its streets and squares and draw its chimneys and, and the birdies flying over it. Draw all of that. Now, Ezekiel's neighbours would have been walking by. Hello, Ezekiel. What are you doing? I'm drawing the city of Jerusalem. Then. Then, says the Lord, lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a, build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it. And put battering rams around it. In other words, get your Lego set out. Ezekiel's neighbours come by. What are you doing now, Ezekiel? I'm besieging Jerusalem with my battering rams made of my Lego set. Really? Then, take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. So take an iron pan, put it between you and the tablet, with the battering rams all around, and you're going to be besieging Jerusalem. The neighbours walk by. What are you doing now, Ezekiel? I'm besieging Jerusalem with my iron pan. You're the clay tablet. Yes, Jerusalem. I'm besieging it. Why, Ezekiel? Because this will be a sign. They were probably muttering, it's a sign, all right. <laughs> now, it gets really weird. That was the hors d'oeuvres. Now we have the main course. Then, says the Lord, 
lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. Pause a second. Do you understand what is happening? Ezekiel has to lie on his left side a day for every year of Israel's sin. That is three, that's over a year. He's lying on his side. Now then he has to lie on his right side for 40 days, but that's another story for, for Judah's sin. But right now, 390 days, a day for each year of Israel's sin. The neighbors come along. What are you doing now, Ezekiel? I'm lying on my left side. Weren't you doing that yesterday? Yes, and I have a feeling I'm going to be doing it tomorrow. Here's the point. Here's the punchline. Verse 7. Then turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. The key phrase there is with bared arm. Having lain, can you imagine his arm after lying on it for 390 days? You know what it's like when you've just lain on your one side all night by accident and you wake up and it feels like there's nothing left in it. Well, after 390 days, the muscles would have atrophied. There would have been sores and welts. It would have been agony. And then the Lord says, after 390 days, with bared arm, prophesy what I tell you. Now, it doesn't say exactly what Ezekiel said to them in the Scripture. But I want to tell you tonight, I have been given special revelation. And I'm going to tell you exactly what Ezekiel said. You may want to take a pen and add it in to your Bibles. Here's what he said. Ah! 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 You see, God isn't just looking for people who will prophesy his words. He's looking for people who will prophesy his heart. Anyone can prophesy his words. We need to be a people who prophesy his heart. We need to lie on our left side for 390 days. So we don't just give nice little prophecies to people, but we share the heart of God and we feel the heart of God and we have the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that is true intercession. True intercession is sharing God's heart for his world for his church, and standing in the gap, and identifying, and then going through the agony of identification. Ah! And out of that comes authority. 
Jesus went through the cross. And now he's at the Father's side. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are too few people today who work on that principle and who seek to live that life. I've had the privilege of meeting a few of them. I want to finish by telling you about a couple of them. Over the last 10 years, I've had the joy of becoming good friends with someone who was my hero when I first became a Christian, a guy called Brother Andrew. Those of you that are older, you might remember, he wrote a book called God Smuggler. It was the second Christian book I ever read. And uh, he's 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 a Dutchman. And uh, he used to smuggle Bibles into the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc and risk his life. And he used to go and stand with the persecuted church. And he nearly got arrested and killed many times. God Smuggler is still a great read. It's a classic. Read it. Well, I loved, I loved that story. And then about 10 years ago, I was, I was um, in Holland speaking at a conference. And I got a message. Brother Andrew invites you to his house for tea. And I thought, I don't believe this. I thought he was dead. And I went to his house, and there he was. Then it was about, I think it was about 70, 78, something like that. And I sat with him in his study, and we had tea. And he's a little, little Dutch old man. And I said to him, what do you do now, Brother Andrew? Meaning, what do you do in your retirement? Do you grow vegetables? Do you watch old movies with your wife? Do you, what do you do? And he said, do you want to know what I do? He said, I make friends with terrorists. And I thought, oh no. Another disillusionment. You were a man of God, and now you've gone gaga. And then he started telling me about all the terrorists he's become friends with. The leaders of Hezbollah, the leaders of Hamas, uh, all sorts of people. And I, I thought, this is mad, until he showed me a photo of him, and this was 10 years ago, and Yasser Arafat, arm in arm. And I said, why? And he said, I don't make friends with terrorists. I've become friends with some of the leaders of the Colombian drug cartels. And I was like, why? And he said, because God broke my heart for the lepers of today that no one wants to go near. And God said to me, will you go to them? And will you speak up for the persecuted church, the church that they are persecuting, but will you go and love them? And so, this crazy old Dutchman, he went to Israel, and he found them. You know, in the years when the leaders of Hamas were fugitives in the mountains of Lebanon, he went looking for them, and he found them. How he didn't get killed is a miracle. And you know this guy, he tells them off. He says to them, You shouldn't kill people. You need to receive Jesus. Jesus loves you. He wants you. He's not making friends with terrorists because he's telling them they're all right. You know, this, this guy is, he's a Christian. You know, he's a follower of Jesus. He's going to share God's love. And he's done the same with some of the leaders of the Colombian drug cartel. 
And the stories are amazing of some of the things that have happened behind the scenes. Just three years ago, he was going to come to Soul Survivor and speak to our young people. He did it about three years beforehand. And just before he cancelled, and I was like, and, and the, what the message that was given to me is something else has come up. And I was really cross, a little bit offended. What, what, something better's come up, has it? But it's Holy Trinity Brompton have invited you to something. They got money. And, by the way, I love Holy Trinity Brompton, that's why I can say that. And, uh, and it was like, what is it? And I found out weeks later, you know where he was instead of being at our festival in Somerset? He was secretly in Afghanistan, baptizing 17 new believers in a river. He's now 88 years old. He's still going for it. I saw him a few months ago. In fact, we did a little, I interviewed him, we, we filmed it. Because I want to give a copy to every young person that comes to our events. I want them. Anyway, that's another story. And you know, here's my point. He's a scary man. He's 88 years old and he's scary. When he talks, he has an authority. About a year ago, at the end of our meeting, um, Andrew said, before you go, Mike, let's pray together. And I prayed first. And I prayed one of my best prayers. I really did. Lord, bless everybody, especially mums and dads and grannies. Amen. And then there was a pause. And this 88-year-old man prayed this prayer very quietly. And if anyone else had prayed this, I would have said it was hyperbole, exaggeration. He said this, and I'll never forget it. Lord Jesus, I ask that you give us grace and mercy and love, that we would be willing to crawl on our hands and knees through a field of broken glass if on the other side there is one sinner who needs to hear your gospel. And then he sighed and he said, Amen. And you know what? I knew he meant it. Because he's been doing that all his life. All his life. And you know, at one point, I, I said to the Lord, Lord, why do you keep picking on him? Hasn't he done enough first time round? with all the, the smuggling the Bibles. I mean, he's an old man now. Why can't you pick on someone else? Why does he have to do all that? And do you know what I just sense the Lord saying to me? I asked many others, but he was the first to say yes. He was the first to say yes. I'll finish with this. Um, and I, I never talked about this while this man was still alive because, and even now, you'll think this is weird. I'm sorry, and it is weird, but I, I'm going to tell it as it is. Um, and I think the Lord gave me permission after he died to talk about it. And his wife and his daughter know that I say this and they're fine with it. I talked to his daughter two weeks ago. Um, I met again about seven, eight, nine years ago 
uh, a man called Terry Ackrill. And I was up in Scotland speaking at something. And this old man and his wife, they came over to where I was sitting very quietly and they said, could we pray for you? And I was like, well, you don't say no to that really. Unless you're not a Christian, of course. And so I said, okay. And they started praying for me. And honestly, as they were praying, I just sensed the presence of the Lord coming upon me in an amazing way. And then I smelt this smell that was unbelievable. And it was this fragrance. And then I could feel it on my forehead as he, as he anointed me. I thought, where did he get that oil? It's beautiful. You know, and I, I've been to Israel and bought the, the oils and, and even them didn't smell like this. Anyway, then when they finished praying, they shuffled off. And I asked someone, who is that man? And where did he get that oil? And this guy said to me, we don't talk about it very much, but when he's praying for people, the oil comes on his fingers, supernaturally. Sometimes it drips. And God shows him who he's to pray for and what he's to pray. I got to know Terry and his wife. And... uh, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I've been into things charismatic Pentecostal for long enough to be very suspicious. You know, I, I don't want to get hoodwinked again. So um, we, we invited Terry, I invited Terry to come and hang out at our festival. And, um, and to my shame, I need to tell you this, um, we, I, I wanted to make sure it wasn't a trick, so I had him followed. So different people on my team... They would follow him wherever he went and would talk to each other. Where's he going? He's getting up. Okay, you two, follow him. Where, where, where did he go? He, he went to his car. He opened the boot. What, what did he get out of the boot? Did he put his finger in there? No, 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 we were looking. We had binoculars. He didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't put his finger in there. He just got a Bible out. And where did he go? He just came back and sat down. Okay, okay. So is that, because I just wanted to make sure it wasn't a trick. But do you know two things? One, there was times when I was watching. Because, I, you know, when you're leading young people, you, you don't want to lead them into nonsense. And he had a short sleeve shirt on, and his fingers were dry. And then I asked him to pray for someone, and I saw the oil come on his fingers. I saw it with my own eyes. He didn't put his hands in his pockets. And even if it was some amazing trick that makes him a top-quality magician, it was bizarre that he should have gone to so much trouble because he never once asked for money and he never once asked to be on a platform. We never told anyone about it. I'm telling you, after he's dead. Well, anyway, the thing with Terry is I started taking him to abroad with me. We would pack him in our suitcase, and not exactly, and take him. I took him to Holland and other places. And do you know, there were times at the festivals when, as I was starting to lead a ministry time, Terry would shuffle along the back, and he'd go to the side of the stage. He'd never get on the stage. He'd stay at the bottom, and he'd go... And I'd go over, and I'd say, what? And he'd say, Mike, the oil's flowing. And I think the Lord is saying he wants to do this, this, and this. Really? Okay. And then he'd shuffle back, and I'd go and stand on the platform, and I would say... I think the Lord is wanting to do this, this, and this. And then the Lord would do it. And I'd get to look good. (laughs) 
One time, I said to the Lord, Lord, why don't you do that with me? Just once, for your glory. (laughs) Just once. Go on, just give me a bit of oil, just once, for your glory. Do you know what the Lord said to me? He said, are you willing to pay the price that Terry paid? And then I remembered, once I'd asked Terry, once I'd asked him, when did this start happening? And he said, and he's just this dear old man, he said, well, it was about 14 years ago. Um, For years now, the Lord's been waking me up about four o'clock every morning. And from four o'clock to seven o'clock, I've been praying for the nation and praying for the church in the nation and praying for revival. And I've just been doing it every day for, for years. The Lord will wake me up and I just couldn't not pray. And I just thought, well, this is what you've called me to, Lord, I'll do it. And then one morning as I was praying, the oil started flowing. And he never once asked to be on a platform. And I didn't put him on a platform. I would not speak about him while he was alive. Because then you know what we would do to him? The focus would be on the oily hands man. Instead of the Jesus who he wanted the focus to be on. And you know, he paid the price. I'll just tell you one last quick story. I love it. I'm good friends with a guy called Roy Crown, another guy with Andy Hawthorne. Roy was leading youth for Christ in this country. Andy leads the message, a big evangelistic agency. And we're friends and we've been doing things together. And a few years ago, Roy and Andy came for a day to Soul Survivor because the three of us were going to discuss whether we were meant to continue to work together on an evangelistic project in this nation called Hope. And uh, we met at the Speaker's Lounge and there was this glass window. And um, when we came and sat down... Um, It was lunchtime, it was empty, and I'd just seen before Terry and his wife had gone down to lunch. Within a few minutes, they came back, and Terry just sat down and started reading the paper. I thought, that was a quick lunch. And then I said to Roy and Andy, hey, I want uh, this friend of mine to pray for you. I didn't tell them about the, because I wanted them to be surprised, and I always used to get him to pray for my friends. So they said, we've got a meeting, we've got to make some decisions. It won't take a second, just come in. I said, Terry could you pray for my two friends? He didn't know who they were or anything. And Terry said, okay, that's why I came back. I said, what do you mean that's why you came back? Well, I was walking to the car, and then I said to my wife, the Lord's just told me we're supposed to pray for someone in the speaker's lounge. We need to go back and wait, and God will show us who it is. They'll turn up. So it must be you then. And I said, okay, go on. And, And Roy and Andy were like, what? Anyway, he was about to pray for them. And then he turned to me and he said, Mike, I can't pray for them. And I was like, what do you mean you can't pray for them? I said, why not? And he said, look, the oil is flowing from three of my fingers. I think the Lord's saying that I'm meant to pray for the three of you together because God has something that the three of you have to do together for his kingdom. So now we're doing hope, an evangelistic initiative that is going all over the country. Thousands of churches getting involved. Something like that saves hours of committee meeting. Intercession is standing in the gap. Identification. Will we identify with this nation 
Will we identify with the whole of the church? Will we go through the agony of that identification? Or will we stand apart? Out of that place comes true spiritual authority. That's where miracles happen. That's where lives are changed. That's where people are turned upside down. They that sow in tears will reap in joy. Last two sentences, very quickly. How do we get there? Do we work this up? No, we don't work this up. It's a gift. Intercession is a gift. How does it come? Romans 8, verse 26. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with us, in us, with sighs and groans too deep for words. And the Spirit searches our hearts. The gift. And we're going to pray for that gift right now. We're going to ask the Lord to birth something in us. And we're going to see what happens.